so this evening, I want to look at where is a place of compassion in uh, Korean song. Because this is often a question I get asked, you know, like if you have uh, Theravada Buddhism inside Vipassana tradition, then generally you have the four qualities you cultivate, loving kindness, compassion, equanimity, rejoicing. Then if you look at the Tibetan tradition, they have exchange of self and others and many different uh, practice of that time. And in the Son tradition, you just got the question, what is this? So then where do you find, in a way, the practice of uh, compassion, one could say? And so I think you can look at it in two ways. One way would be to look at it in terms of do we cultivate something directly or indirectly? Because I talk about that at the beginning. And that's what I experienced when I was in Korea, that after one, one retreat of three months, then immediately when I was in daily life, I could notice that I was more compassionate, that I thought of the other before myself. And that's when I realized, oh yeah, this works. So I might be doing this, what is this, what is this? And it has also that effect of, as I said previously, diminishing the self-centeredness. And of course, you're going to be more there for others. But there is also uh, a whole training of compassion, which is really strong in the Korean Son tradition, but this is not found in the sitting itself. It's actually found in ethics. Because they really, I mean, that's something which is very emphasized on the Korean Son tradition, as Stephen mentioned this morning, is ethics, meditation, and wisdom. And so, in whatever way you practice, if you just practice meditation, they'll say it's not enough. If you just practice ethics, they'll say it's not enough. Same with wisdom. And so in order to develop on the path, from the point of view of that tradition, you really need to cultivate the three things together. Ethics, meditation, wisdom. And then they have a text. They have a very important text for them which is called the Brahmajala Sutta, which has very little to do with the Brahmajala Sutta that you find in the Pali Canon, apart from the first part. Basically, the f I have the impression that in a way this text that uh, is so important for Korean Son, which is also actually the Bodhisattva precept. Personally, my idea, I mean, I translated them and the reason I translated them was that every two weeks in the monastery, we recite them. So after a while, I could understand what was going on. Cause, uh, and I thought, hmm, that's why so-and-so does this. 
oh, that's why Master Kuzan does this, is because it is in the Bodhisattva precept. So I became very interested in a way the effect of the Bodhisattva precept on the behavior of the monks and the nun among themselves and with the lay people. Because the thing is that in Korean Son is a very communal life. So in a way, the way you relate to each other is very important. The, the idea is you're not all in your little huts at all. You know, you sit, sleep, eat in a room like this. You know, that's your dining room, your meditation room, your chanting room, you do everything. And you might have, you know, 20 to 30 people living together. So in a way, they need to have a way to live together, which inspires them to live together in harmony, so to speak. And so I think what happened was that you have the Brahmajana Sutta you find in the Pali Kana, the little beginning. And then you have many texts which arrive in China or were translated from India. And then around the 400, 440, they decided to create these precepts. So of course, in the text, they tell you it dates from the Buddha. But if you look at the text, it's Chinese. It's very Chinese. It's very obvious that it's Chinese. Because uh, they talk all the time about filial piety, which is totally Chinese. So what I found interesting in this text is that they created an ethics which fitted their time. And so it was, it's kind of between a monastic ethics and a lay ethics, because the Bodhisattva precept are for both monks, nuns, and lay people. So the monks and nuns take them, recite them every two weeks. And the lay people take them, renew them every year. So this is an ethics which is not based upon perfection. You must be like this all the time. So you just take them once and then, you know, this is it. But the idea is that you try the best you can to follow them, knowing that according to condition, you might not be able to so well, and so you have to take them again every year to remind yourself that this is an important part of the practice. So that's why this, after, this evening I wanted to, to look at, uh, at this text because I think it's really vital in terms of the way they live, uh, what they do, it's really kind of like really this is I would say, as important to them as the sitting, the questioning meditation. But first, I like to read from the text, what are the precepts compared to? The ethical precepts are like a brilliant lamp which can disperse the darkness of the night. So with cultivating ethics, Cultivating relationship is like a bright lamp in the dark. So really seeing it really important to brighten our life. They are like a most precious mirror 
which is able to reflect the Dharma in its entirety. So what is interesting here is often you have a notion of awakening, which is a very strong notion in uh, Zen, Chan, Son Buddhism, often is being seen as a-conditional. So often it's being seen as going beyond ethics. Sometimes you hear about this strange word, crazy wisdom. But here it doesn't say that at all. It said that part of the practice, the whole Dharma is contained in the precept. That actually we're not going to go towards something a-conditional, beyond ethics. And the last one, they are like a most valuable gem which frees one from poverty and endows one with wealth. So often in, modern, in the modern world, we often have this impression of the precept and ethics being something which is kind of, you know, tightening, which is kind of, you know, claustrophobic, which is kind of uh, not fun. But here it's interesting. It says it gives you wealth. It makes you rich. It helps you to flower. Stephen talks a lot about flourishing. And I think the ethics, they see ethics are really helping us to flourish. So then, what are the precepts about? So you have the 10 major and you have the 48 secondary. We're not going to do each of them. Because, you see, what we have to see when we look at a text like this, which was created in the 4th, 5th century in China, is that in a way it's, a, it's historical, it's geographical, and it corresponds to a certain culture. And also it's a religious text. So it's slightly in competition with other religion and other tradition. This is what you can notice in any text I have worked with in terms of translation. You can, even like with the Six Patriarch Platform Sutra, which is a very seminal text for the Son tradition, you'll see one third of it is about competition with other tradition, sect, etc. So to me, that's what is so interesting. You have kind of a third, which is about competing with somebody else, a third, which is really very historical, geographic, and a third, which actually speaks to our time. That's what I found fascinating, you know, that they devise this to correspond to their life. Insert for 400, 450. And it still speaks to us. So the first one, just to give you any, the way it works a little bit, especially with the major one. So they have a title and then they have a little explanation. Refrain from taking life. But that's all there is to it. A disciple of the Buddha must refrain from taking life either by performing the act of killing himself, by causing someone else to do it, by doing it in a roundabout way, by praising death, etc., etc. So what is interesting here 
is kind of, you just don't, don't just say, don't do this. Like, do not cause harm. He's saying, look at the different way you could cause harm. You might not cause harm directly, but you could cause harm indirectly. Or you actually, you could cause somebody to do it on your behalf. So it's kind of, it kind of in a way, looking again. What is interesting with this precept is looking at the conditionality of ethics. And then one must never intentionally kill a living creature by creating the cause or condition for death or by developing a means of taking life, etc., etc. So here, intentionally, they, it will come again and again. Are you doing this intentionally? So of course you could cause death accidentally, which is a little different than intentionally. Unless you keep causing accident, then you kind of start to wonder what are the conditions. So one has possibly also to look at that. And it finished by that, in a way, a bodhisattva is somebody who aspires to awakening. The idea is the duty of a bodhisattva to be always compassionate. So this really, in a way, the main point of the precept is about compassion. It's about, in a way, looking at all the different conditions which stops us or help us to be compassionate. That's really what it is about. Then you have, again, refrained from taking what is not given, and then again, the same. You, you don't do it yourself, don't cause somebody else to do it, etc., etc. So, again, looking, not just saying, don't do this, but actually, the precept asking us to look at the condition, at the way we behave, at the way we relate to others, to the environment. So it's basically looking at causes, at condition. You also have refrained from harmful sexual behavior. So again, you kind of look at the all different things. So he's not saying you should not have a sexual behavior, but are you causing harm? Are you causing harm to yourself, to others, in a roundabout way, etc., etc.? Then you have refrained from telling lies. So you have the same. Then you have an added thing. That I love that one. He must never convey the impression that he saw something that he did not see, or did not see something that he did see, either by physical gesture or by mental intention. This is getting subtle. This is really getting subtle. That, in a way, you must not convey the impression, oh, I saw this when you did not see it, or I did not see it when actually you saw it, and then by, even, by, even if you don't say anything, by physical gesture, I mean, sometimes you say, I did not say anything, and the person comes, I mean, like, you are so expressive that something was kind of expressed in some ways. Or by mental intention. So this, to me, what I found beautiful is kind of goes in just fine detail. 
So that is, I see these texts more as a kind of exploration. Exploration of how do I speak? What do I say? Is it true? I mean, I had a friend. Uh, she decided that for three months, she was not going to talk about anybody who was not there with other people. And she said it totally kind of her speaking diminished radically as long as she's followed that. So it's kind of like exploring our relationship to speech, our relationship to honesty, to truth. Then you have refrain from praising yourself and slandering others. So basically, you know, don't put yourself up and put others down so that you can put yourself even upper. And then, you know, don't create the causes and conditions, all that. And then this is a duty of the bodhisattva. This is really, I think, possibly the most difficult thing that's being asked of us here. It is a duty of a bodhisattva to take upon himself the slanter directed toward others, to transfer whatever is unpleasant to herself, and to give whatever is good to others. Are we prepared to do that? Sometimes I feel we're not even prepared to consider it. But I think it's interesting to consider it. Taking upon oneself the slander directed toward others. I had a friend, actually, that's what he did. Because he used to work for um, a recovery uh, center. And then sometime everybody got a little kind of excited. And they would say, oh, well, he said this. And then you said, oh, no, no, I did it, I did it, I did it. So then everybody would come, you did it? And then it kind of changed a little kind of the, mm -hmm. the relationship. So it's kind of like. How we prepare to do that? To transfer what is unpleasant to oneself, that is really, really tricky. I mean, we, we have this negative bias where, you know, if we have a little unpleasantness, we will notice it so much more quickly than if we have like, you know, let's say, number five, pleasant. It takes us number six to think, wow, that's great. But you just have minus two unpleasant, and you think, wait a minute, I don't want it. And here he's saying, can you consider taking what is unpleasant for others, for yourself? And to me, I think this is what's happening in the world a lot nowadays. I mean, we want everybody to be safe, everybody to be happy, but not if it takes something from us. That, I think, is kind of often that's what's asked of us. Can we extend ourselves and not be always comfortable? And then to give whatever is good to others. When there is good thing, can we share it? with others. I think this is very much about appreciative joy, altruistic joy. Then you have another one, refrain from reviling others 
in order to spare yourself. So putting something down, somebody down, so you don't have to kind of give them something or help them or whatever. Oh, they're really bad, you know, pff, no, no, you know, and things of that nature. Or refrain, this is another one, refrain from being angry. And when someone comes to ask forgiveness, treat that person well. So here you have two aspects. One aspect is wonderful. I really like this one. It is a duty of a bodhisattva to be kind to others and not to quarrel. It should present a compassionate state of mind. If, on the contrary, a bodhisattva should abuse a living creature or vent one's anger on an inanimate object. <laughs> Was not, I presume in those days, they might kick the cart. <laughs> Our day, we might kick the computer of the car. So, to me, it's so, what I like about the precept, it's so human. It's kind of saying, you know, what happens when you're angry? And often when one is angry, wisdom goes. So they're not saying, you know, anger is bad per se. They're saying, you know, when you're angry, you'll hit somebody, or you might kick your computer, or whatever. I mean, generally, it doesn't help. And so kind of looking at this, kind of when we're angry, what goes? Wisdom goes. And then we might act in a way, either which might be unwise or might be harmful. But then here, there is an interesting point here, that if somebody asks for your forgiveness and your anger is unappeased, this is a really serious transgression. And this is, I find, interesting, this thing, is this idea of forgiveness. Is that, in a way, we talk of forgiveness, but generally we seem to forgive, but we don't forget. So you might say, yes, I forgive you, but you know, a few months later, but you did this. So you forgive, but you don't forget. To me, that's not true forgiveness. And when I was in Korea, I was really amazed. Because in the monastery, in the nunnery, they had really, due to this precept, they had a tradition. And this was a tradition of asking for forgiveness and accepting it. And what it meant is that if you made a mistake, the only thing you need to do would to go to somebody, generally a little higher up in the hierarchy, and you just had to bow three times. You bowed three times, and you said, I made a mistake. And that was it. And it was forgotten, never mentioned again. And what was funny was us. Like, you know, if we made a mistake and then Master Kunsan, you say, well, you did this. And we say, but really, you know, and we kind of, and I could see the Korean think, gosh, you know, if they could just bow three times, it would be finished. But that's not the way it worked. And I thought it was so beautiful because it was saying, just saying, yeah, 
I made a mistake. And through that understanding how you made the mistake, recognizing it, and then just letting somebody know that you saw it, you recognized it, and then saying, okay, yeah, you did that. Hopefully you have learned from this and you won't do it again. And that's it. And to me, this was so beautiful. That kind of like uh, tradition of forgiveness. And that's why I saw really the beauty of that text. Then you have another one. Just now we're getting to the minus one. Care well for those who are sick. And so upon seeing someone who is afflicted with a disease, a disciple of the Buddha must care and provide for him or her as he or she would for the Buddha himself. This is very interesting. It's saying to us, care for those who are sick. And when you see them, see them as if it was a Buddha himself who was ill. So take great care, great compassion, great respect. And to me, this point is so important because when somebody is suffering, there is a very famous episode. I don't know if Stephen mentioned it. When that was at the time of the Buddha, and so they were all living together. And then the Buddha noticed a monk was not seen. So he went to see what was going on. And he was told, oh, he's ill, and, you know, he's lots of diarrhea, and it's nasty and everything, you know. And so nobody was taking care of him. And so the Buddha went and cleaned him and everything and so forth. And then he said, but why did not you take care of him? And the monk said, well, you know, he's ill. He can't do anything for us. Why should we do something for him? And the Buddha said, wait a minute. That's not the way compassion works. And I think often we have to be careful of what I would call this marketing compassion. Kind of, you know, I do something, then you do something. When here he's kind of saying, can you see each person? I mean, this is a very important idea in Korean song. Can I see each person as a Buddha himself, as a Bodhisattva? himself or herself. Then you have some very practical one. This was again why I love this text, because you have kind of like some rather precise one, and you think something must have been going on. And this one is one of those. Do not beg for and try to obtain things by relying upon the authorities. A disciple of the Buddha must not extort money or goods or seek any other kind of gains through relying upon the power of a king, a prince, a minister of state, or government official with whom he is closely acquainted. This, I think, is about influence and corruption. So basically it's saying, you know, try to avoid being corrupted. Try to avoid using other people's authority. Then you have saved the lives 
of living creatures and set loose those who are about to be killed. And so basically this really applied very much to animals. So the precepts are not just for human beings, they're also for animals. And out of that precept, you started to have this ritual, the ritual of saving living, living creature at certain auspicious days. But then what happened is that then in the market, you have the people saying live animal, which then the Buddhists buy to release, which the people in the market catch again to sell again to the Buddhist. So you had kind of this strange kind of uh, thing happening, which still go on to this day. This tradition still go on to this day. And what ended up because of that tradition, that precept, is that they started, like there was a book from the 1800, somebody being in China in the 1800, and he said, when you went to a big monastery, it actually was like a zoo, because you had the animal that the people would bring who were too old to work in the field, then would finish their lives in the monastery. So he had the place with the cows and the donkeys, and he said it was kind of like, there was all these places with the animal which were actually fed by the monastic from the donation from the people. So that, to me, what is interesting is that from this precept, then you start to have a whole things which kind of start to happen. It's not just an idea. It actually become something practical, something which has uh, causes and conditions. Again, refrain from anger. Do not strike others. Do not take revenge. A disciple of the Buddha must not repay anger with anger or blow with blows. This is so difficult to do, isn't it? If somebody is angry with you, it's so hard not to answer in kind. And generally, does it help? I think this is a question, you know, uh, does it work? Because generally, things kind of just increase. I remember uh, in France, we have this thing which I don't think you have here because it's a, possibly a Catholic country, uh, and we have cemetery. And in the cemetery, the whole family in the village have a tomb. And in it, you, you, know, you can put to eight coffin and things of that nature. And so something happened with our tomb. This is always a lot of problem with the tomb, because you, know, you get more family, and uh, it gets a little complicated. And so finally, we heard coming from the other family, that our family could not go there anymore. This is it, finished, finito. Real estate, not possible. And my mother was very upset about it, because she, you know, she wanted to go there, my father, my brother, you know, our mother was there. So I said, all right, all right, I'll do it. So then I phoned the other family, so we were talking, and as we were talking, it was like the voice was being raised. Like, you know, she would say this, I would say, wait a minute, she would say, wait a minute. And, and then I thought, uh-uh, we were kind of about there. 
And I thought, this is not going anywhere. So then consciously, I did the opposite. I dropped my voice down, I used more soft word, and she did the same. And so in the end, we kind of found a, lit a solution to this problem. So in a way, it's kind of like the precept is kind of looking. We react in certain way. Does it work? You know, is there another way? I think what this precept is about, can we creatively engage? When we meet anger, can we creatively engage with it? The first thing to ask is, is this about me or is it about the person? Did I do something or not? If we do something, maybe how can I creatively engage with that? Habits. If I did not do anything, then the person has to take care of it themselves. But how can I stay stable and open? And I think that's where the meditation comes in. And it's very important to see that the three trainings are building upon each other. So ethics help meditation, which help wisdom, which help ethics, then meditation helps ethics and vice versa. So the three are really important. They really help each other. Then again, very practical, do not hold an unwholesome, harmful occupation. And again, a disciple of the Buddha must not, with harmful intentions, again, harmful intention, and for the sake of gain. This come again and again and again. Harmful intention, and for the sake of gain, engage in such occupation as selling physical charm on men or women, and all kind of other things that was not to be done then. Now it might be a little different, like interpreting dreams. <laughs> if you are a Jungian analyst, <laughs> possibly it's different. Predicting the sex of a child, making use of spell of magic, performing tricks in order to deceive others, preparing any kind of dangerous drugs or concocting poison out of gold, silver, or the venom of insect. Again, we would look at these things in a different way now. So in a way, very likely, here you have a few unwholesome occupations which corresponded to this time. And I think here, what's a unwholesome occupation in our time? So it's kind of looking harmful, which harm other and also which is for our personal gain. And I think nowadays it's very tricky to find uh, an occupation which is really not harmful. I think it's very hard. And so I think here we have to kind of bring wisdom to it. What, what's the limit, considering that there is so many causes and conditions? Some are fairly obvious. I mean, I had a friend, he was looking for, long ago, he was looking for some work in Australia. 
And at the time, the only thing he could find was to work in a uh, factory where he had to kill chicken. And then after a day, he said, no way, I cannot do this. So there's something fairly obvious. And then some things are maybe more complicated. Then you have pay ransom and rescue people from their difficulties. So again, And then the last one I wanted to look at, do not cause harm to sentient beings. So that's a title. And then a disciple of the Buddha must not sell sword, sword clubs, or bows, or arrow, or nor should he use uneven balances or inaccurate weights and measures. Again, one must not use one influence with government office to deprive others. It sounds like something which happened a lot in those days. You should not deprive others of their possession, have others bound and shackled. Undo the achievement of others. That's an interesting one. So in a way, looking at this text, what it makes me think, reflect is what would be, in a way, the Bodhisattva precept of our time? How can each of us could create such a thing? Or as a community, how we could create such a thing, adapting to our causes and conditions and circumstances? And so we're starting to see this in uh, different people in different places. I have a lot of friends who are uh, part of what nowadays is called engaged Buddhism. But to me, the precept here seems relatively engaged. But nowadays it's called uh, engaged Buddhism. And I have lots of friends who are reflecting on that, in a way, an ethics for our time. And in January, we went on a pilgrimage to Sri Lanka. And then we met uh, Dr. Arya Ratne who is a fa the founder of the Sarvodaya movement, which what is very interesting with uh, Dr. Arayatne, who is a Buddhist, is that he started all this, you could say, engaged Buddhism, end of the 50s, beginning of the 60s, before anybody in a way used to do this kind of thing. But when he started, he was very clear that what he wanted to do was kind of helping villagers to help themselves. But he wanted it, although he was Buddhist, he wanted it to be open and to support any villagers, regardless of their religion. So he just not, he did not just help the Buddhist village, because you have Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, Christian in Sri Lanka. But he created a movement inspired by Buddhism but applicable, helping different type of people, regardless of their affiliation. And to me, this was very inspiring because I, I knew about Sarvodaya, but I had not realized how much it was actually open to everybody. And because of that, how much it reached in the village life 
when at that time people did very little for the villages. And yet lots of difficulty for the government to even pay attention to what he, did, what he was doing, which was good in a way. So he could help people and help themselves to help themselves. And it was quite an amazing movement and which continued to this day and which has developed in many ways and also was slightly uh, involved with when there was a, the war between the Sri Lankan Buddhist and the Tamil. They kind of played an important part in trying to help with the peace. So to me, in a way, these precepts are really kind of like uh, to help us to see, yes, meditation, this is wonderful, can be very helpful. But also there is a whole aspect we have to work in terms of relationship. How do we use resources? How do we relate to others? How do we engage in politics? Because when he talks about influence, this is about politics, about, you know, there is an interesting one where he says, do not go in a war camp. Do not be an envoy with a harmful intention. So this is kind of looking at a whole different aspect of society and how we can bring that compassionate ethics to it in our small ways. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.